Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Cattleman's Call podcast. I'm Lane Nordland, and I tell you what, there is quite a lot of innovations out in the countryside, and one of those innovations that producers are starting to experiment with is virtual fencing. You know the invisible fences they create for dogs where you just set up a boundary and the dogs have a collar on and if they go too close to that fence, those dogs know that they are too close to that fence. Well, that's what we are going to be talking about, but virtual fencing for cattle. It's a pretty interesting topic. When we come back, we'll hear from Montana rancher Leo Barthelmus. He's a good friend of my family, and he is an innovator in the livestock business. We'll be back with Leo to learn more about his background, his operation, and how he got a start utilizing virtual fencing in Phillips County, Montana. But first, these words from today's podcast sponsor, Gallagher. Gallagher Animal Management, with over 85 years of electric fence innovation, scales and EID data management solutions, and the latest automatic watering systems, we have the tools and expertise to help you with all of your animal management needs. With NCBA just around the corner, make plans to stop by the Gallagher booth and look over Gallagher's latest technology, or check us out on our website at Gallagher.com. Gallagher, the next generation of animal management. Today, I'm excited about the conversation we are going to be uh, having, talking about virtual fencing. Yeah, that that's right, virtual fencing. Uh, it's a topic that you may have heard about, maybe briefly read about, but maybe it's the first time you are learning about it. And our guest today uh, from Malta, Montana, Leo Barthemus is joining us. And this is a uh, a venture that he has been on for, for a few years now. And uh, I'm excited to dive into virtual fencing, what it holds, uh, how the future, what's in store for the future of the livestock industry and how both consumers and producers can learn more about uh, animal production. But uh, first off, Leo, how are things in, in Phillips County here on uh, this November day? Well, they're very good, Lane, and, and I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Uh, I'm pretty excited about the t- potential of the Vents product. Uh, we've been using it for about three years, and it's worked well for us on our cow-calf operation here in south of Malta, Montana. My brother and I and our spouses manage the property, and uh, we've been here about 50 years, and, you know, it's a good place to live, great neighbors, good good livestock country, good grazing, lots of wildlife. Now, could you maybe paint a picture for us, Leo, what, what Phillips County looks like, especially South Phillips County? Obviously, I, I'm familiar with Phillips County. That's where the Nordland side of my family uh, came and came and uh, set up their operation at. Uh, what, what, what is the landscape there? What type of grasses are growing? And uh, and uh, th- then that'll maybe help us build the picture of, of how this grazing system ha- has been built around uh, uh, the the uh, virtual fence. Certainly. Uh I guess, you know, I work with, a, with the conservation community and the terms they use, uh, Phillips County region north of the Missouri River, which includes Blaine, Phillips, and Valley Counties, is what they call the glaciated plains. And it turns out that I've learned with my association with the people that know such things, it's one of the last intact grasslands in the world. 
Uh, it's rolling hills and sagebrush in the southern half of the county. Uh, more, less sagebrush, sandier soils on the north half, more, more grain influence on the north half of the county. Um, lots of varieties of grass. It's a core area for the sage chickens. It's the home of the second longest wildlife migration in North America, the antelope coming from southern Saskatchewan to the mussel shell plains. A lot of, a lot of unique features. I've been told that Phillips County produces a tremendous amount of ducks. Uh, where the, the, our particular ranch divides the sagebrush steppes along Beaver Creek from the Prairie Pothole region. Um, and duck production here is huge. Ducks Unlimited is active up in this region. Uh, good, Like I said, it's excellent forage, cures well, cattle can graze out year-round if the quantity is there, and that's one of the economic benefits we're trying to capture with the advanced product. Well, again, thanks for, for sharing that and setting up uh, what that landscape looks like, because Phillips County is not a small county either. It uh, what What is the, the square miles of Phillips? I, I don't even know that. I can't tell you exactly the square miles, but it's about almost 60 miles wide and almost 100 miles long, so it's larger than Rhode Island, I've been told. So it's so, it's a long ways. It's Dr. a it's a long ways, but 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 a lot of good people uh, up in that in that neck of the woods, and yeah, uh, and so as you said, uh, your family's been on the operation for for fifty years. Uh, how, how did you come to that to that place in South Phillips County? Uh, my family came from Miles City. My grandfather homesteaded in Miles City, south of Miles City, in nineteen thirteen. The property that he homesteaded became an in holding of a larger operation. And there was no room for growth in that region. So dad purchased, uh, rented a ranch in Fort Peck, Montana. And then this one became available in 1964. And and we moved up here when I was eight years old and got to go to a country school on the property. You know, typical historic ranch operation. Yes. <laughs> Well, yeah. thanks for sharing a, a bit of that that history, Leo. And uh, obviously, uh, ranching since uh, you moved up there in 1964, you have seen some changes. Uh, what were some of the the styles and management from from uh, say from your dad to your generation that that have you know really built up to just the innovation that you have continued to to put a, as a top priority in just trying to stay profitable but keeping conservation in the back of your mind how, how has that evolution continued uh to grow so you know my my father brought the ranching culture from southeastern montana it was a traditional profitable business model for a long time and then as as economics of agriculture really started to change especially livestock in the 1970s suddenly one or two pastures and hay and all summer became less viable weather patterns contributed to some of that. So we started, you know, I'm a longtime student of Alan Savory, started studying, studying holistic resource management, uh, working with the NRCS and our BLM range cons, you know, to recognize the value of grazing versus mechanical harvest. And we've continued to gradually do that. There are 38 permanent pastures on the ranch, 60 miles of barbed wire, 15 miles of two-wire uh, electric fence. And and so, but we've recognized the more management we 
created with the grazing of the livestock, the better returns we had on reduced hay harvest, reduced feed feed purchases. So we've just continued to do that. And I've been concerned, as many ranchers have the last four or five years, six or seven years, the infrastructure on these properties, some of it's 80 years old. And, and yeah, you, you make it work, but eventually it's going to have to be replaced and it's going to be horribly costly to do that. So when the opportunity to work with the conservation community and work with the fence company, the virtual fence came, we thought we needed to participate to address some of the infrastructure costs of the future, uh, intensify our grazing, inviting larger pastures into a lot smaller ones, increase the rest periods on the grass, um, you know, build a, a drought stockpile for a forage. So there's just been a lot of benefits uh, from engaging in good grazing management or best management practice, let's say. So that that's where we're headed. You know, it's there's no silver bullets. There's a little benefit here and a little benefit there. So that's that's how we're approaching it. Well, I remember the first time I remember learning about uh, uh, your endeavor with the virtual fencing. Uh, I, I sit on the Montana Grazing Lands Coalition Initiative, and uh, I haven't made the meetings the last two springs just because of weather uh, are face-to-face, but I, I know we have helped fund some of the research and education uh, uh, through through our grant monies. And uh, when, when did you first, I guess, start learning about virtual fencing? What, where was the resource? Was that here in the United States, somebody doing that? Or, or was that uh, somewhere abroad where, where you really first got uh, a first like, huh, somebody's using virtual fence. And, and I guess we haven't done a very good job explaining what virtual fence is. I'm not being a very good host here, Leo, because in my mind, I know what you're talking about. Uh, what, when did you first learn about or, or hear about the virtual fence concept? And then and then we can maybe dive into what exactly the infrastructure looks like. Sure. Sure. That'd be great. So I was at a ranching for profit business training in uh, Idaho. And there was a, a family there. We're talking about people in Canada were using the product and it was coming out of New Zealand. And we reached out to them in November of 18. As soon as I, got back from the school and they were early on supportive of participating. They had to get it into the United States. So I went to a friend of mine who was really interested in, well, she made the comment that wouldn't it be great if we wouldn't have to have fences in, in, you know, sometime in the future. And I said, well, it would, but we'll never see it. Two years later, we get to see it. So, so we worked with that, made the early, early approach with that other company and they could not get it marketed in the United States due to some, I, I'm unfamiliar with what the reasons were. And fortunately, one of our associates in the conservation community found the Vents company, and we reached out to them and put in the same proposal, because uh, by this time, we had a grant based on the previous commitment to do this. And uh, so the Vents company, they were supportive and and we had a had a meeting with a Zoom meeting with their uh, management, and a week later they said, "Yeah, we can. We would like to participate with you in the conservation committee." So, so that's how it got started. Um, that was in March of 2019, and we had we, it was necessary to do this program. We needed some NEPA approval from the federal BLM. 
they didn't have collar inventory that soon either, and there's quite a bit of preparation work. So uh, we went to the BLM, and they were supportive of the project and had to do archaeological surveys and such things because the repeater station, which I'll explain shortly, uh, four out of five of them are on, on federal land. So we got all our ducks in a row, and we were able to make the initial collaring of cows in November of 2019 so that we could manage winter grazing. So if you would like, I can continue on with what the vents is. So the vents is a collar that's attached to the cow, and it, there is, it's kind of complicated, and, and I just work on this end, but you need a, a cell signal, a strong cell signal, and you need you need to have enough gateways or repeater stations to transmit the data from San Diego by cell phone and, and it gets to a repeater station and then and it converts it to a radio signal and that transmits the information programming to the callers. And then the callers, once they have the programming, they communicate directly with the satellite. So that's that's the nuts and bolts of it. So again, to repeat, you have to have a good cell signal to communicate. Um, and if the rolling hills in South Phillips County is nearly ideal for this project, there's very little elevation change across a ranch. But the steeper the land is, the less opportunity the gateways have to program the callers because it's a line of sight radio signal. But but I build the fences on my desktop computer, mark them out on Google Earth, all the pastures are identified, all the existing infrastructure is identified, and the callers are GPS managed, so I know where every cow is that has a collar on. And so then we start managing these fences and, and feeding the cows additional acreages weekly or daily if we want to get that sophisticated with the management. Um, and, it, and it works pretty well. And our goal is, as a grazing operation, or trying to get to be in a grazing operation, we are are encouraging our cows to eat snow. And in the winter, when we have snow, we will vents them in to outlying areas that are a long ways from water. And so they can eat snow and graze, and we'll supplement them with the appropriate supplements that you know most ranchers use. And then that that allows us to save the, the additional forage near the water sources for hot weather, summer and spring. So that's, and then we're just, we're hoping to get to a 12 month grazing season to minimize our need for prepared feeds, hay and supplements. So that that's our economic niche we're, we're shooting for. And it's great that your trial's actually going through a time of very severe drought in Phillips County too, uh, and and that's how I, I think that's a great way to to really see how that forage under drought conditions is being impacted as well for when there are undroughty years. If if we can cross yes. our finger for that, uh, how, how is that? A, I mean, obviously we want rain, we we need forage, we we want to have uh, uh, you know get out of this drought cycle. But how is that beneficial though through this research to actually do this through a drought, especially when we're talking about water conservation and and not overgrazing and making sure that that forage is there for your livestock. Well, you know, it's fortuitously 
it has been really, we got to do it in 19, lots of snow, so we got to graze the outlying areas away from water, uh, preserve the forage closer to the water sources, because um, we, we manage, you know, by, by best management practice, NRCS has a set of guidelines, BLM has a set of guidelines, uh, you know, there, there are certain rules that you should, you should try to follow and adhere to. So the initial grazing in the winter of 2019, we grazed out till the 7th of March on, on our allotment and later into the season on, on the private properties, we were able to stockpile almost six weeks worth of hay, which we fed up last year during that drought. And, and again, we grazed outlying areas so that the cattle could stay closer to the water when it was hot. So it actually, it w- I think we were fortunate we got to do it in 19 because there was some real economic benefits for doing that. And uh, we leased grass off the ranch for the summer of 2022. So we have a lot of vegetation left and we have six inches of snow on the property right now and we're managing the cows for those outlying areas again to preserve that take half leave half uh maybe not by plant but by acres on the on our federal allotment and on our nrcs recommendations so i think it in in many situations it can be highly beneficial for lots of people because we're you know our ranch is like every ranch we have have properties acres that are well, to be honest, are severely grazed because their proximity to water and other acreages that are never grazed. And we've got really good forage when it rains in one place and old decadent forage that's less than desirable in others. So in the wintertime, we can we can address that decadent growth. And, and the following year, we've increased the nutrition and quantity of the forage when it rains in these outlying areas. So you know, it just gives us a lot of flexibility and opportunities. So we talk about the collar itself, and and I think the easiest way uh, you see the the virtual fence programs for dogs and and for your uh-huh. yards, and so that's I think a lot of people can be familiar with that. So some people might be wondering exactly what's the, the longevity of the collar itself, and uh, I guess what is the what's the pulse like? What what do those cattle feel when they when they cross that virtual line that you draw on Google Maps? I've, I, so there's, there, on the, on the third rendition of the collar that we're using now, there are two chains separate, there are two chains that come off of the collar that provide a, an a electrical pulse uh, if the cow crosses into the physical stimulation zone. There's also an audible warning prior to that so that during the training phase, the cow unstarts fairly quickly understand that when they hear the sound, there's going to be an unpleasant event shortly thereafter. So that, that works. So they get, they get a shock and I don't know how severe that shock is. I've never heard cows vocalize that shock, but I've certainly seen them shake their head and turn around and leave. So um, it's not severe because the company is mindful of animal welfare very much. So, so, um, you know, I've seen cows, we just subdivide these pastures and, and it, it is kind of interesting to see a herd of cows standing out in the middle of a pasture because they historically used to graze over in such and such an area and now they won't go over there. But 
you know, they're just all standing bunched up in, in a wide open space. And, and uh, it's interesting to drive around in the snow, supplementing and stuff and seeing where they, you can see a boundary right where they, the fence line was. So. No, I, I, I just think that's, it, it's so cool to just to see this. And, and I have not made it out there to see this on the ground, but I've watched some videos that, uh, that, uh, have been put out uh, with, with your trials. And, uh, I, I guess as we, we look at that though, um, what is the maintenance on those collars? Because I know you mentioned there's been some different versions that you've utilized. Uh, so producers might be thinking, how much upkeep goes into making sure that uh, there's power to those collars? Yeah, well, so, you know, it's an emerging technology. It's only like five years old, you know, at some kind of scale. So it's battery powered. The batteries, depending on how small your grazing areas are and how many opportunities a cow confronts a virtual fence line, the batteries will last nearly six months um, in America. I Some of the trials in Australia, they'd last two years because the cow rarely, you know, I mean, we're talking state size pastures. Or, uh, so, uh, so there's twice a year you have to recall it recall to your in our case we do it twice a year because we're grazing in the winter and then again in the summer so so we just recalled cows last monday and then we'll do it again in march so twice a year we got to call our cows they're they're still working out some bugs in calder retention some of them were a little bit design issues and some of them were manufacturing glitches so you know they're still working on that we've we've dropped off uh, maybe 10 to 15 percent of the callers have been lost over the season uh, so you know that they're working through that it's like i said it's emerging technologies so maintenance isn't bad it's, the callers are gps so you can drive to nearly all of them that you that are lost uh, it'll show up on a map that that's on the web page the herd manager for vents. So, you know, it's, it's not painless, but it's pretty pain free. I mean, it's, it's, uh, considering what it could replace over time, it, it's worth the effort and, and, and it's fairly expensive. So the gateways, I'll go back to that a little bit. The gateways on the ranch, there are five of them that cover our 25,000 acre grazing operation. And the gateways probably cover another 25,000 of the neighbor's grazing operation. So theoretically, a group of ranchers or grazers could pull together and share these gateways so that they could cover more acres and reduce the cost. Because the gateways are the biggest cost. They're about $10,000 a piece. And the rancher is respond owns them. Now, the callers are rented by the month. And the only cost that the rancher incurs is change, paying for the batteries, which aren't cheap either. But um, so, you know, it's a, it's it's not cheap. Costs us about five bucks a month to rent those callers, counting battery replacement and and then however you want to figure the depreciation and amortization on the gateway. So, so. So, Leo, when you compare that to the cost of installing, you know, a two-wire electric fence or, or building a boundary fence uh, or, uh, you know, an actual 
uh, four four wire, a five wire fence. Have you run those numbers side by side? Even though I, this is a new technology, prices uh, will come down the more obviously that this is developed. Have you run those numbers side by side to what it would cost to put in a new mile of uh, actual fence or or just hot wire? Yes, and uh, in 2019, fence wasn't really competitive with barbed wire or two wire fence, but now. Uh, I think barbed wire fence is $15,000 a mile, give or take where you get your materials and a two wire electric fence is seven to eight, you know, and in our, in our ranch, we've got to replace 30 miles of fence in the next 15 years. That's a big number. So, you know, vents is suddenly competitive. And then with the, and once you get the gateway infrastructure in place, then you can build, in our case, I built 50 miles of vents last year, you know, with, with just a couple hours work in the, on a computer. So, I mean, the op- management opportunities are broad and way bigger than, than a infrastructure, hardware infrastructure, because it costs too much to move a fence or hard hardware fence. So. But your son yeah, Eric's no. a pretty good fencer. I mean, he could just go out and build that all right. Yeah, he could, but, you know, <laughs> I can't afford to pay him what he's worth. I don't think any rancher can. So, Just for transparency, his son Eric worked for my dad for, for many years on a on a construction fencing crew. So uh, just for transparency out there. Uh, but uh, that, that does lead us into the conversation of actual boundary fence and whatnot, because somebody might be listening to this, Leo, and say uh, – geez i mean are they just using all virtual fence obviously you still have boundary fence and whatnot and and your pastures are still probably cross fenced in in other areas though yes you know i enjoy the technology i think it has great potential but it's new it's only companies only five six years old will it be here five or six years from now we hope so i think it should be but you know you know how startups are some of them don't make it very long uh, so, no, we have not removed any infrastructure on the ranch based on Vince technology. As we need to replace it, we'll certainly make that decision whether to restore the existing infrastructure or just go to strictly Vince. But uh, so, no, no, we, I, I, you know, I'm a frugal old rancher. We don't take stuff out just because it doesn't, you know, as long as it works, it's get used. Now, uh, when, when we look at the training, I know you mentioned there's a training period that you put the cattle through. What, what does that look like? What were you doing that? And, and what's the time period that the, that these cows, how, how long does it take them to, to figure out what that, what the, the noise is and then versus that, and then that pulse? So the, it's a very, really very simple procedure. Uh, we call her to cows in November of 2019. And prior to that day, we'd built a virtual fence around three sides of a smaller pasture that they always like to in november they they graze on the other side of that fence and we built a fence right around around an existing fence line and they approached it got within a few feet of it heard the buzzer got the shock and it only took them two days and then we could start moving them away from that fence with the fence line and they knew what it was within two days it was it was amazing i was expecting a 
a lot longer learning curve, but it didn't take any time at all. Yeah. No time at all. So are all your cattle collared then? They are now. Yeah. This year we, 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 you know, because of the drought, we didn't collar some of the cattle because, you know, some of them were going to off, off ranch pastures and those kinds of things. But, but right now all the cattle are collared. Yeah. And uh, I guess when when we look at just the pros and cons of this, uh, and, and again, we, we just want to make sure our listeners know this is this is developing technology, and Leo is truly one of the 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 few pioneers in the U.S. that that is trying this and that is going through uh, the process of writing grants, working with conservation groups to write grants. It's it can, can you just talk about the time that has gone into the 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 grant writing the presentations the phone calls just before you can even get a tower set up or put a collar on it's it's not i dream it's not an i dream of genie cross your arms and blink it's it's quite a lot of work that goes into it 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 takes a lot of time and 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 that initial attempt at it in 2018 and early part of 2019 i went to uh a friend of mine that works in the partners program for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and she said, everybody wants to see this experiment work. So, you know, let's write a grant through the Rancher Stewardship Alliance and and the, and the group of people that we work together, you know, we're solution oriented. Let's, let's figure this out to make this work. And so the grant writing fell in somebody else's lap that had that experience. And, and we were the cold weather experiment for vents and and the, you know, the glaciated plains, so to speak. So there was a lot of time, but it wasn't by me. We were, you know, building infrastructure because we had to assemble the gateways in, in our shop when they came on a pallet and you built them and, and those kinds of things. So, and then, you know, just a lot of early on the vents company, whenever we built vents lines, we did it on Zoom with our engineer. Todd Parker was the gentleman I worked with, have worked with for the last four years. Uh, so there was a lot of time just learning stuff. And I still don't know it all. They keep changing the programming. It's always for the better. But, you know, us old guys have trouble learning all this computer stuff. And so um, so it takes a huge, not a huge commitment, but it does take a commitment of time, a different kind of work than fixing fence or those kinds of things. So it just... You know, and there's a, a lot of people want to see it work, so there's a lot of support. The BLM was support even getting the NEPA done and, you know, doing archaeology and, you know, so so it, it's been a positive, I think. Well, that was going to be my next point. Obviously, <clears throat> for ranchers across the West, uh, the, being a, a grazing allottee permit uh, owner is is how so many operations uh, are able to, to stay in business. And as you mentioned, the cost of fence is, is not cheap, and especially when you're looking at uh, uh, trying to get a crew out to, to build fence uh, on BLM allotments, whether you're paying for it or the Bureau is. Um, how, how, how is the, the BLM looking at this as an opportunity to, to really showcase the work that ranchers do in, in conservation, in land stewardship, and also having less impact on the ground by putting that physical barrier in? Uh, they should be just over the moon at looking at these opportunities uh, for the short time that uh, permittees are, are, are legally allowed to graze uh, on the landscape. You know, they are. Uh, for the first year, everybody was sitting back and watching, as is, is appropriate. And 
but now there's a, a Vents working group that's that's hosted by the Vents company, and I've been on there a couple times. And there's multiple universities across the West are using the product and and testing its feasibility. And then there are BLM and Forest Service districts in the West, Colorado, New Mexico, I think some in Nevada. There's other producers now in Montana. And, you know, they're they're writing grants and pooling resources, multiple allotments going together to fund the gateways. As I said, there's a, you know, they cover a lot more typically than one ranch or a portion of one ranch. So, so there's a lot of interest in, and I think Todd told me they were going to try to get 50,000 callers on the landscape this spring in the spring of 2022. Now, my next question is, do you, do you still run sheep on the, on the operation? We sold the sheep in 2019 and bought some more in October of 22. So, yeah, we're back in the sheep. Well, at least the prices were good buying, buying sheep in the, yeah. <laughs> this past yeah. fall. Uh, is there, obviously, that's, that's a little, uh, that's a different animal. Uh, is there any chance that these collars could be utilized on sheep, or is that wool going to be inhibited of that process? Well, um, we bought hair sheep back. Okay. <laughs> so we bought hair sheep, so they don't have as much wool and I've been tasked with vents to see how see how they work with sheep so yeah there is a chance they're they're doing a program in Australia right now and Todd said so you want to be the first guy in North America to try it so I've got 42 callers to put on you know the lead sheep so to speak out of 300 so yeah we're going to try it in the next three weeks well, and that could be something too, just uh, d- depending on flock behavior, where you might not have to collar all the sheep too. Is is that maybe been talked about too, or what they're seeing in Australia? I don't know. They just started the pilot okay. down there too. I have no insight as to what's going on down there. But no, we're going to try it on sheep because you know there's a lot of weed issues around the west, and and sheep or goats, either one could be very beneficial in replacing herbicides and watershed management. So. Yeah, we're going to try it because we'll see. And they use the same collar technology that they do on cows. So there wasn't a special. So we retained 42 of those collars to put on the sheep. And in the, the last few years that you've done this, what what have been, it's been some of the benefits that on, on, on your herd, on, on body conditioning that, that you've seen, at, obviously, since you're trying to utilize uh, that pasture to its best of its ability and leave half as well? Uh, how has the body conditioning been, especially in 2019 when, when there was, uh, I mean, there was snow all winter and then nothing happened when, when, when spring and summer came up there. But what, what was that like when we're looking at not supplementing with hay, but also with other supplements, of course. But what what was that body conditioning like? We were able to keep the cows right on either side of a five. Uh, we calve a little later. We don't calve until mid-April. Uh, 80% of the calves are born, you know, either side of the 1st of May. Um, so we, can, we got a little longer window than maybe some other producers. So our cows maybe aren't as as good a shape when they calve as, say, somebody that calves in February because, you know, we got a little better window for them to gain later. Uh, but, no, we, we try and keep them in a four, four and a half to five range. Um, and the, because we're, we're 
grazing nutritionally challenged feed in the winter time so we're feeding a couple pounds of high protein supplement and one of the, one of the benefits of vents is certainly not going to pay for it but you know instead of being scattered across that 3,000 acre pasture they're scattered across 500 acres so feed time is a lot shorter travel you know and and the time you spend out there shorter so those are pretty positive things I mean they're the little incremental benefits um, so you know, the, the body condition is about the same, just getting more utilization of more grass. So over a period of years, when it gets back to normal rainfall, I think we'll have a higher quality nutrition across the ranch because the most any of the grass will be will only be three years old versus five and 10 years old. So, um, and you know, it, my conservation peers tell me that nesting habitat and chick rearing habitat requires green grass to grow bugs for them so i'm hoping that you know there'll be some positive influences for the wildlife as well obviously this kind of changes how you gather cattle where you work cows and uh especially branding how much less stress is that on you knowing that we got all the cows are grouped up here you don't have to do a big big roundup uh, when you're working cows, I guess, is it less stressful in, in times of actually trying to work cows or get branding done or just, just try to get them through the shoots? Um, so when we're gathering in high stress events like shipping or branding, and you have a lot of people that are helping you, we don't have any vences because if there's an issue with a cow and somebody tries to, yeah, so we just, just, you know, shut the system down for in the pasture they're in, you know, for a high, high stress event like that. Or so when we're uh, managing it the rest of the time, we got to be mindful that we don't put events across a gate. We always want an exit strategy, prairie fire or something. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they would run away from through the vents for it. Cause I've seen cattle go through it when pressured, but seen other times they wouldn't too. So, so I don't know how they'd respond, but, you know, you have to be mindful of their needs and behaviors and, and, you know, it, it's, that's been the biggest learning curve is to have that much control and you can push it to beyond where you should, I, I think. And, and and I just want to clarify too, it's, it's not like you're going on a 20 mile loop now, just looking for cows for, for, you know, when, when you're getting yeah. ready to work cows or, or whatnot too. So that's nice. And a, a question somebody might have though, is as you mentioned, you can track where those, where those cows are out that are collared with that signal. Some of our listeners may be wondering who owns that information of the cattle being tracked and whatnot. We'll answer that question coming up next, but but we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back with Leo Barthelmus right after this. Gallagher Animal Management knows that gathering and analyzing animal data is important to run a successful operation. The Gallagher Animal Performance web and phone app make it easy and efficient when you need answers in the palm of your hand. You can even monitor your fence performance from your phone as well. Plan to stop by Gallagher's NCBA booth to see all the latest innovation. Or check us out on our website at Gallagher.com. Gallagher, the next generation of animal management. Coming back today with Phillips County, Montana rancher Leo Barthelmus talking about virtual fencing, the technology that makes it possible, and also the information 
that is collected while cattle wear these collars and also the tracking that goes on with the towers out in the countryside. Uh, Leo, just to put it plainly, uh, you own the information that is collected by Vince. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes, yes. And if you're working, you know, like we're we're working, uh, the BLM doesn't, they don't access records or anything for the ranch. You know, it's voluntary turning the right numbers, those kinds of things. But where the BLM or Forest Service is maybe funding part of it, maybe there's a different kind of relationship with the rancher. And I and I'm sure a rancher is not going to jeopardize their business by revealing too much information. But you know, it, it's a case by case. All these ranchers are different. All the people that manage them are different. Uh, your cultures are different. So you know, it, it's an opportunity for all of us to do good work in the context that we live in. Now, obviously financially feasible for most operations probably not at this point but the more that this develops the more trials the more collars that are made as you mentioned they want to have 50,000 collars on cattle here in the United States or North America um, so as we look at this and say in 10 years as this technology is truly fine-tuned and in that lead up to the next decade is it going to be easier for a smaller operation, medium or larger, to try and utilize this and try to pencil it out financially, but also trying to work with the neighbors as well or have almost a co-op system? How do you see that? What what size of operation is going to be able to utilize this most effectively, cost-effectively over the next 10 years? Well, the, back to that individual thing. There are producers right now that have 100 head collared on the working group but i've you know i've observed and they've said well and i you know and they will voluntarily allow the mentors to help them on zoom and share screen and so everybody's looking at their ranch operation you know i've done that for them and other people have looked at what we do as well so so the variation in size ranges from a hundred to six seven hundred people i mean head of cattle with a collar um i think like in my case uh, we could have, would have been difficult, but we could have run temporary fences to achieve this kind of stuff, but nobody wants to spend the rest of their life fencing. So, I mean, it really wasn't. So I, I think if you're somewhere in that five to 15, 18 inch rainfall, this, this product is, you know, is calling for you. I mean, this is the year that, you know, if you get into some high, Missouri like grazing where cows they measure cows per acre you know vents maybe is not a not an economical alternative but that's up to every individual producer to figure out for themselves yeah. you know Leo I, I don't want to spend my life fencing either that, that's why that's why I'm the only Nordland that gets paid to talk Okay, <laughs> but uh, for you, that's what I say. I mean, those Nordlands, they they know they know how to talk up there. Uh, but you know, look looking ahead, though, how how can our listeners learn more about your story or Vince's story if they want to maybe experiment in this, learn more about it, try to become a part of these trials? Uh, first, I'd encourage them to learn more about about what you're doing. Where, where can they where can they go watch that video that Riley Slifka produced for you guys? Oh, I think it's on YouTube or go to the Rancher Stewardship Alliance webpage. I got a brand new relaunched webpage. Uh, there should be some links there or they could 
uh, reach out to the RSA staff and they could guide them to that. Yeah. And there's, there's several, several uh, YouTube videos. You know, if you look under the Rancher Stewardship Alliance or Virtual Fence, uh, there, there's several YouTubes because people were pretty excited about the technology. So I, you know, helped participate in a few of those. So, you know, I, I want people to have the opportunity to learn about it. So I agreed to do those things. And, and Leo, you've mentioned the Rancher Stewardship Alliance, and uh, I should mention, I believe, was it back in 2005, you were the regional winner for the Environmental Stewardship Award? Is that correct? We were, yes. The ranch was, yes. And so, obviously, conservation, sustainability, stewardship, that's something that is has been on the, the mind of your family for, for, for generations and, and looking to improve. But you know, Phillips County is a unique place where there's there's nonprofits that that want to have a dialogue about how uh, the 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 landscape should be managed and and what what type of species should graze there. How important is it though for you for you and your family and for the producers in Phillips County to to tell their story the 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 sustainable story of livestock production and the role that it plays not only in Phillips County but Montana's economy. Uh, why is it important to tell that story to to consumers, to agency officials, and to, to utilize these new innovations like virtual fence to showcase all the hard work and innovation that, that cattle producers are, are putting forward? Well, Lane, it's really important, and, and that's part of why the situation we're in has developed as we weren't, we weren't talking about the good work that was done by previous generations and um you know that to go back to my earlier comment this grassland that i live in the northern tier of montana and even the muscle shell plain we're the largest intact grassland left in the world and that's largely due to you know good stewardship of the livestock grazers it's not i'm not saying there weren't abuses and aren't abuses but you know people are really good about adopting best management practices and this South Phillips County has very nearly every species that Lewis and Clark would have seen in this area. I mean, right now today, so it isn't too far off. Uh, the Rancher Stewardship Alliance, uh, we're a nonprofit, and when the, con- when the nonprofit started buying property here, we figured the only way we were going to have a voice at the table was form our own nonprofit. And, and reach out to people and have an opportunity to tell our story around the table versus nasty editorials in a paper or something. So that's been, you know, we've just tried to be the safe space where a good conversation can take place. And, and subsequently it's, it's been fairly successful that we work with lots of conservation partners and not all, but a lot of them that support our work. And, and we're, we're administrating grants for, the ranching for these conservation groups and the Rancher Stewardship Alliance is administering money for water lines and welds and fence retrofits for wildlife migrations that I spoke of. And we're in a, we're in a very important core area for the sage chickens. And, you know, we're telling what good work the ranches were and trying to work with these people because, you know, there's a lot of stress on agriculture and, and now there's this, carbon sequestration movement and the more 
rest we provide for our rangeland, the more vegetation we put on the ground, you know, there, there's some real income producing opportunities in carbon sequestration. And, but that requires livestock management, you know, cause rangelands are absent of livestock. We really don't sequester very much carbon, you know, and stockpiles, dead forage on the surface. And then, you know what fires do to our national forests and mm-hmm. so yep yeah, so so you know it's a we just need to respect each other's needs and desires and work together to find the best solutions for us all well again uh, we we've talked uh, a, a lot about uh, how technology can can help improve rangeland herd health but also it's it's a part of telling that story of of what goes on in the countryside and Leo, I guess what 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 are some cautions that that uh, 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 a caution maybe you would you would tell somebody that that is looking at implementing these new new technologies before they fully jump into the deep end? What what are some things that that they should check off before they they decide to make an investment or hire someone to write grants? What 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 are some of those cautions or or just a, a good tip for them to follow? Oh, I you know I think. I think, you know, honestly, I think going to ranching for profit would be a really good start because there's some economics that may or may not work. Uh, so, I mean, I, I don't think that we can pay for the fence product just saving labor on maintenance of fences. It's got to be a, a more integrated approach that you have to improve your grazing properties. You have to have some way, in our case, we're trying to diminish the amount of hay that we're going to feed. So there's a economic benefit for that. And, you know, there's a lot of things like that. I think it's super important to run your economics on your own ranch. Um, that's probably the number one thing. And then I've found, I've been a long-term stu- time student of grazing management. Suddenly I've got all this stuff and I, I, I'm having to learn a lot more stuff because I never expected that have the opportunity to feed 400 cows 90 acres a day you know kind of management that that takes some planning and you know that requires me to sit down at the computer or sit down on a ranch map and start mapping out a grazing plan and um you know months in in advance sometimes uh an example we were we were able to graze a property north of malta and the guy was interested in events so we pre-programmed the callers before we moved the cattle 19 miles north so that he wanted this a grazing strategy implemented, and, and we were supportive of that. So we, we pre-programmed the callers for his property because once we got him up there, there was no way to change it. So it was kind of important that we get it right. So, you know, suddenly grazing management is above my skill set, so I'm having to go back and learn a bunch more. <laughs> those kinds of things it's things i hadn't thought of it, yeah it, what, what what was it like though the first time that you maybe told the neighbors or, or somebody if you made it to town to the coffee shop uh when, when you first kind of brought this idea up what, what was the reaction from some of those folks and what's their reaction now especially folks that that border you or, or around you down there cautious assessment <laughs> No, cautious assessment. You know, it, it's it's uh, you know, it's the technology's not to be. It's expensive, so you need to have a plan and and maybe be. You know, I don't know. 
the finances of any of my peers in Montana. So, I mean, there's, there's considerations like that and actually can the product be used on their property and, you know, and, and if you've done things a certain way a long time, it's hard to change that and these routines because, you know, the average rancher is what, 62. So we're pretty much embedded in our philosophies. So it takes a lot of extra effort to change. And jumping and jumping back to that conversation of all the work that the Rancher's Stewardship Alliance does and just outreach, education, and grants and resources for producers, what, uh, I, I guess, what's a, what's a tidbit to, that you could share with, uh, with a young producer or that family uh, operation that, that either needs to expand to, to, to have two families on there or, or a person going off onto their own? Uh, with just your, with your experience in the business, uh, what, what are just some, what's some knowledge you'd just like to share with them, especially, uh, producers here in the West that it takes quite a few acres, uh, to, to, to run, uh, a profitable cow herd. Well, what has served our family very well is continuing education. I've been to ranching for profit twice. I'm going to Wally Olson's marketing school at the end of the month. And then communication. I'm at the age, my brother and I are at the age of we're engaging in succession plans with our children, maybe a decade late, but um, we're host, we're holding family meetings every two weeks in a, in a neutral room. And, and we're talking about, well, first off, we're just talking about, you know, what we need to get done in the next two weeks and, and the relationship we're creating to work together and we're communicating all the time and, and we, we just got done shipping and preg checking. And my daughter, we filled out a flip chart with all the stuff we need to do to preg check or ship that day. What the documents you need, you know, what equipment's got to be in place. When did you go make sure all the walkthrough on the corral? So everything was up to speed. And so, you know, it's just, we're just having these meetings and communication is by far and away the most important thing. Just, you know, and if you need to get a facilitator, it's probably worth your money because some of these family split ups are hugely expensive financially and emotionally. Communication. And, and Leo, can, can I ask, has your family always had that open line of communication or, or is this something that you guys had to, had to come to? Because I, I think this, this might be one of the most important, uh, the virtual fence aside, just the communication is so key to keep ranchers in business and going but is this something that you guys had to learn learn to adapt to and, and have these these meetings or did you ha- have a facilitator come in uh would you feel comfortable talking about that of course no we didn't have that and and it's something i've learned all this from the rancher stewardship alliance literally because here we were with all you know back in 2000 when in 2001 when we started meeting as a community the Nature Conservancy funded a facilitator to come in, and there was 30 to 50 people at the first Creek Hall, community building south of my ranch quite a ways. And I, I watched that whole process, facilitated consensus, and it was completely foreign to me, and we've continued to use that. You know, maybe we don't like somebody sitting at the table, whether it's a family member or a business com- competitor or a conservationist or or a red guy, a red cow breeder versus a black cow breeder. I mean, you know, whatever it takes. 
sheep guy versus cattle. But we sat in a circle and we hashed this stuff out and we're upfront and transparent. And RSA's success is built on communication and the Barthamus Ranch, if we're going to be successful, we have to use those same techniques, treat people with respect, you know, be transparent, say what you mean, don't walk out of the room with with buried feeling. I mean, you just, let's get this figured out because we're talking about children and grandchildren here and, and children and grandchildren of my friends and neighbors that I went to country school with. And, you know, these little communities are, they need a lot of support and we're going to have to do it ourselves because nobody's coming to help yep. us. Yep. And how, how much has the ag community, the number of operations, uh, you may not have that number uh, in front of you, but how, how many operations have shrunk since the 1980s um, to, to what the number of producers now in Phillips County? Do, do you have any idea about that? or I don't really, but I will bet we've lost 30 or more, 40%. I'm just guessing. Or more. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. I think how many people lived here when I was eight and you know, there's maybe as many people living here, but it's under one or two yeah. or three or four family businesses. Yeah. It's, it's diminished and you know, that's a repeatable statement all over the West. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, I think we've had a great conversation here today, Leo, and uh, uh, hopefully we, maybe we do a follow-up here on the podcast in the next few years, and, and I, I want to get out to your guys' place the next time you do do an event or, or media thing. I think it'd be great for, for me to just come out there and see that uh, as the son of a fencer, you know, I, I love <laughs> learning more about new ways to do fencing. Who, who would have believed that my dad would have... What a, what a just went from, you know, the treated post. He, he does everything in pipe now. And I'm like, I never thought he'd do that. He, 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 he's pretty innovative. He, he follows the trends, I guess there, but, uh, uh, he's out front. (laughs) <laughs> but uh leo again thank you so much and and uh for our friends uh, uh interested in this uh, uh again check out vents that's with a v um and also the ranchers stewardship alliance online there you can find more of those educational videos uh that they had put together uh on the Bartholomew ranch uh south of malta with their virtual fence uh, leo anything else before i let you get back to your, to your uh, day up there in phillips county well, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity to visit with you. I haven't seen you for a while, and we always have a good time when we see each other. Uh, you know, I just encourage people to not give up. There's there's a bright future for ranchers and grazers, you know, and, it, and it's a terrible struggle we've had with these droughts and stuff. And But I think it's coming around. I mean, carbon sequestration could help and new grazing technologies. And there are a lot of entities that want ranchers to succeed because they recognize in the conservation community they recognize the value of managed grazing for wildlife well again uh, a great topic here today innovation technology and and just uh ways that we can stay in business uh through these innovations as well so thank you so much to leo barthelmas for joining us here today on the cattleman's call podcast thank you all right that will do it for today i'm lane northland we'll catch you next time thanks for tuning in to ncba's cattleman's call podcast with lane northland for more information visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today